What is up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 75 of the RDO podcast. Now, today you've just got me, Jason Von Cannell. Uh, I've decided to do a solo episode today because uh, we've had some sort of scheduling issues this weekend and also with the prevalence of the Omicron variant being around in Queensland at the moment uh, and having a heavily pregnant wife, uh, we just decided it might be a little bit sensible for me to do a solo episode this week which gives me an opportunity to run through a bit more of like a presentation style uh, session here. So for the audio listeners, uh, there will be a lot of data that we're going to go through uh, if you want to watch along on YouTube. All of the sources are going to be on uh, in the show notes on YouTube as well. So if you do want to go and check these out for yourself, please feel free to do so. I will read things out, uh, obviously, as best I possibly can, so the audio listeners can uh, hear all the data. But... I thought it'd be really important today because today, so I'm recording this on the 7th of January, but it will be dropping live on Monday the 10th. And Monday the 10th is a pretty important day uh, in Australia because that is when the vaccine rollout for children aged 5 to 11 will begin. So before we get into that, uh, I sort of wanted to go through some discussion points today. So I want to start off with uh, a bit of background on the latest Australian COVID statistics. And I'll obviously be able to show you the sources that I normally use and, uh, and go to. I wanted to speak about how the Pfizer vaccine, or also known as Comirnaty, uh, the efficacy of that has been misrepresented to us since the beginning of the rollout and continues to be so. Uh, and I just want to show you a bit more evidence of that. Obviously, the vaccine rollout uh, starts today for kids aged 5 to 11. And... I just want to speak briefly too about the Queensland vaccine mandates for schools and now they're already talking about a return to remote learning for the start of 2022. Now obviously uh, some of this stuff in regards to the mandates is pretty relevant at the moment because uh, of the whole Novak Djokovic situation. So I don't want to comment too much on that because by the time this goes live all the information is going to have changed anyway. But uh, what it does sort of bring to light is kind of the ridiculousness of these vaccine mandates at all. I mean, COVID's currently exploding all throughout our country. Uh, they are just cases. Uh, as far as the hospitalizations and deaths, they're, all, they're still very, very low, and they get lower every single day, which I'll show you through on the statistics that we run through. But it is pretty amazing to see how covid crazy our country has gotten and is showing people again on an international stage based on how we've treated novak djokovic who is a guy who has come to our country doesn't have covid but we're acting like he's going to kill everyone because he's not vaccinated so again that just those topics will be running through today so i want to start off with um a little bit of data. So this is covidlive.com.au. This is where this is sort of my natural go-to uh, when I want to check out what the real story is, what the real statistics are, because data is data, and this is all official government data uh, that gets updated daily. So as you can see here with our new cases, uh, currently Australia has gotten up to 745,861 cases total for the entirety of the pandemic. And that number has raised by 61,800 overnight. Now, it appears here that Queensland haven't lodged their numbers, South Australia haven't, so expect that number to go up a little bit more. But obviously, uh, pretty pretty high case number now since the Omicron variant hit us about a month ago. 
I believe roughly a month ago, and we could probably go back through some of the podcasts to check, but this number here, the 745,000, was about sitting around 200,000 before Omicron hit. So you can see how drastically that number has increased because it's pretty clear as day that the Omicron variant is far more transmissible than even Delta was. And let's see how that has translated to the important figures, which is hospitalizations and deaths. So current cases admitted to hospital, we're currently sitting at 3,632 Australia-wide with 267 in the ICU and 62 on ventilators. So that number has increased by about 20 in the last week. Uh, but again, when you consider we've got 62 total on ventilators and have an extra case, uh, daily case number of over 61,000, it's a very small percentage. Now tests, everyone knows what's going on at the moment in regards to tests. Um, obviously, I mean, look, we've currently, uh, we've to date done 56,500,000 tests. That is a massive number when you consider that the actual positive test ratio out of that is only 745,000. So in other words, we've tested 55.5 million people who don't have COVID. And out of this 745,861, one of the things that we keep hearing lately as they try to play down the case numbers is a lot of these people are incidental um, uh, diagnoses when you know they've gone into hospital, for example, with a broken leg and they test everyone on their way into hospital. They find out that they've got COVID when they're in there. So it didn't put them in hospital in the first place, but they have to show up as a case regardless. So again, vaccines, we don't have to talk too much about the uh, actual doses when it comes to adults because the numbers have pretty much stayed the same uh, for a long time. Boosters, interesting that they don't give you the breakdown by state. They haven't done for a while, uh, but total boosters sitting at almost 3 million for the, for the country so far. Uh, source infection doesn't matter. It's all local now. Okay, so active cases... So at the moment, Australia has 366,737 active cases of COVID-19. Now, when you compare that back up here to the hospitalization number, 3,632. So you might remember me saying on the podcast recently that uh, COVID, when when you looked at like the alpha and delta variants, COVID looked like it had about a 1% death rate. So case to death ratio. Now that looks like more of a 1% uh, hospitalization rate. And then obviously, if you look at our total deaths here, uh, 2,318 total deaths for the pandemic compared to the total case numbers of 745,000. So obviously, the Omicron variant, highly transmissible, but it seems far less deadly uh, than the Delta and even obviously the Alpha strain beforehand. So some interesting statistics there. But to break this down a little bit further... This is one of my other sources I often go to straight away, which is on health.gov.au uh, in the case COVID-19 case numbers and statistics section. So why do I like this one? I always have to refresh it. These graphs, again, are updated uh, daily and they actually drill down uh, into the data uh, far closer. So we can, we can get some other trends. Now, this one's pretty interesting. So you may have heard me say a few times before, I don't believe the vaccine has worked at all in the way that it was marketed to us because it was marketed to us at the beginning of the rollout that it it was 95% effective in preventing COVID-19 infection. Now, 
this graph here of daily cases, so daily and cumulative number of COVID-19 uh, reported cases in Australia, as you can see here, the graph has absolutely exploded over the last month. And I'm assuming that you could all agree with me that at the end of the graph here, which is the date, uh, that we are the most vaccinated we've ever been and our case numbers are the highest that they've ever been as well. So it's pretty clear in the data itself that the vaccine does not stop you spreading COVID. And obviously that's been confirmed, really, it's been confirmed six months ago by the CDC, which we'll get into later. Now, if you scroll a bit further down, so cases and deaths by age and sex, this is where things get very interesting because one of the most frustrating things for me when it comes to this pandemic is the fact that they continue to claim that the safety and efficacy of the vaccine is the same for everyone. They say for everyone it's safe and effective, but the reality of the situation is that there is a cost-benefit ratio which is dramatically different based on your age. So in other words, the older you get, the more likely you are to have an adverse outcome from getting COVID-19. The younger you get, the da data seems to show that the more likely you are to have an adverse outcome from the vaccine. So if you actually scroll down through here and why I want to talk about this is because obviously, like I said today, the rollout for children aged 5 to 11 begins. So here we go. Cases by age group and sex. So in the 0 to 9 age group, which is essentially the cohort that we are beginning to vaccinate today, 30, 000, there's been 30,009 cases in men, uh, sorry, male children, and 28,341 cases in female children. Now, if you scroll down here to the COVID-19 deaths by age group and sex, you'll note that there's only been one death in that cohort, which was a, which was a girl. Now, obviously... I don't want to politicise the deaths of children. I think it's disgusting that our media does that all the time anyway. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is this. Obviously, this vaccine is extremely new. It is still in a trial until 2023, as per the TGA's website. And the uh, formulation for the child vaccine is slightly different, because as we've discussed previously, they've added in trimethamine, which is that... Uh, heart attack uh, blood acid stabilizer drug uh, which they do claim has been added to uh, assist it with being able to be stored at high temperatures for longer and that may very well be the case but obviously it's very convenient that one of the side effects that most people speak about when it comes to vaccination is uh, myocarditis and pericarditis which obviously heart inflammation and inflammation of the tissues around the heart so to put it in perspective, in the zero to nine age group, you're looking at about, so you're looking at one total death from roughly 60,000 cases. And I did the maths on this before. That means the death rate for children in that cohort is 0.0017%. Now, why do I have concerns? I'm a parent. So I have a two-year-old child. I have another child on the way that's due in March. And when I look at the statistics... I struggle to understand why we are looking at vaccinating children when it appear, the data appears to show that they have a 0.0017% chance of dying, which obviously is the most severe outcome that you get from COVID. And statistically speaking, uh, it has been shown that the, major the vast majority of children have only mild effects, and that was even before Omicron. So I, I believe that Omicron 
we will see more and more cases in kids and every other age group but obviously that death number is going to keep coming down now something that might explain the reason why we're still looking at going down this uh, rabbit hole of vaccinating children is the misrepresentation of the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine so I just want to take you back this was the press release from Thursday December 10th 2020 which is this is on Pfizer's website so this is the Pfizer and BioNTech announced publication of results from landmark phase 3 trial of BNT162B2 which is the Comirnaty vaccine COVID-19 vaccine candidate in the New England Journal of Medicine this was the headline from that uh, from that press release data from 43,448 participants half of whom received BNT162B2 and half of whom received placebo showed that the vaccine candidate was well tolerated and demonstrated 95% efficacy in preventing COVID-19 in those without prior infection seven days or more after the second dose I want to harp on about this the amount of conversations I've had in the last three months in particular I would say with people who are very much pro-vaccine and again I'm not trying to change your mind on whether or not the vaccines are effective at all I believe that the vaccines do have a place in our response to COVID. I very much think that uh, vaccines should be used for the elderly, immunocompromised, anyone who's at a high-risk individual, because again, talking about that risk-reward ratio, obviously, if you're at a high-risk individual, um, even if you're an asthmatic or something like that, if you're at a higher risk, it makes more sense to take the punt on the COVID vaccine than to not. But if you are an otherwise healthy young person, not overweight, no diabetes, none of the the comorbidities that we always talk about, that risk ratio, I believe, is completely weighted in the other direction. But this is what I want to harp on about. The vaccine rollout right from the beginning, and whether the government specifically stated it or not, the media coverage of this vaccine rollout began with this headline note. 95% efficacy in preventing COVID-19. That does not say in preventing severe disease or preventing hospitalization or preventing death, which is what we're being led to believe every single day now. It's almost daily I see news stories now on like the Facebook news feed where it's talking about how, you know, people might mistakenly believe that the COVID-19 vaccine is supposed to make you not get COVID, but it's actually just, it was designed to prevent severe disease. Well, that was the headline, 95% efficacy in preventing COVID-19. Now, what's more troubling for me is if we go to health.gov.au and this is from, so this is the Comirnaty, so Pfizer, and the approval for use in Australia for children. So I just want to show you this. So approval for use in Australia. Comirnaty is approved for use in people aged five years and over. The TGA provisionally approved Pfizer for use in Australia on the 25th of January 2021 uh, for 16 years and over, 22nd of July 2021 for 12 years and over, and 5th of December 2021 for five years and over. The Pfizer vaccine is currently available for all people aged five years and over, and appointments for children start today, the 10th of January. Now, again, provisionally approved means it is basically approved on a trial basis for two years. So after that two years is over, which will be from these starting dates, which is why they mentioned them, 
After that two years is over, they have to reassess obviously the safety data that has come out of the trial, but also the efficacy data that's come out of the trial and whether or not it's even worth having it because let's say that in 2023 the virus has completely disappeared. Obviously, it wouldn't make sense to continue vaccinating people for a, a virus that's gone. So uh, provisionally approved does not mean fully approved. Now, the dose schedule... Uh, for children aged 5 to 11 years is uh, it's one third the adult dose so it's 10 micrograms of mRNA instead of 30 micrograms of mRNA now these for some reason again these guys are saying given 8 weeks apart the actual trial itself I believe was 3 weeks apart or 21 days apart so I'm not too sure why they are saying 8 weeks apart unless the claim is that there's some sort of vaccine shortage or something like that. But it seems strange to me that health.gov is going against what the the approval uh, and, sorry, the trial data actually said for the vaccine, which we can get into next. So another key point, you may not be fully protected against COVID-19 until 7 to 14 days after your second dose. So uh, one of the things that has come out a lot is that uh, obviously people have reported adverse events and stuff like that. Um, now, anyone knows if you get a cold or if you, your immune system's run down or you drink too much booze and don't sleep, you're more susceptible to actually picking up any disease, whether that's COVID or, or anything else. So uh, because this does tend to knock your immune system around, if you do go and get vaccinated, please just be very careful for the next sort of two weeks after your second dose, because that's when your immune system's the run down the most. Now... What's in the Pfizer vaccine? Uh, it basically talks about mRNA, etc., etc. I won't go into it too far. Uh, it doesn't mention the trimethamine, which was added to it, but that's a whole other story. But I found this very interesting. So Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. So they talk about approving it, but see, this is the problem. Look at this. Vaccinating children can help protect children from getting COVID-19. It can also help prevent children passing the virus onto younger siblings, parents, grandparents, and the wider community. This is what I'm talking about with the misrepresentation of the efficacy of the vaccine. Why is it that we are being told that in adults and kids over 12, that the vaccine was never meant to stop you from getting COVID, it was only meant to prevent severe disease and hospitalization and death, and yet... We are about to, well, we are literally rolling it out to children today, and we are claiming that it can help protect children from getting the disease in the first place. This is a complete misrepresentation of the data. Complete. And it can be, I mean, it's nothing but a sales pitch. Obviously, parents are scared of their children getting COVID because they've been told for the last two years that COVID is the worst disease on the planet. And it's an absolute death sentence if you get it, which, as we saw in the data before, is clearly not the case. But again, it's just another perfect example of them blatantly misrepresenting the data to make the vaccine sound better than they actually are. Now, if we look at... So this here is from the CDC website in America. Because, uh, sorry, if you go back to the TGA... Uh, if I can find it here, what does it talk about? The approval... Blum, blum, blum. Maybe it doesn't speak about it here. So essentially, the, our TGA approves these vaccines based on the best available data at the time. They don't run their own trials or anything like that. The best available data comes from uh, the CDC, which is the data which basically Pfizer has supplied to them after running their own trials. So the majority of the 
the best available data that you see actually comes directly from the manufacturer of themselves. And if you listen to uh, Joe Rogan's recent podcast with John Abramson, who speaks about how these trials actually work, uh, I would definitely suggest that you go and listen to it because one of the things that came to my attention after that is that the, so basically the pharmaceutical company runs the trial themselves, they collect all the data, they own that data. Then when they say that these, this data or these studies are peer reviewed, what is actually peer reviewed is the study data that the uh, pharmaceutical company puts together themselves, packages up to make it look good and sends it off to the peer reviewers. The peer reviewers don't get to see the full swag of data. They only get to see what the pharmaceutical company shares with them. So that would possibly be the reason why so many drugs that get approved in America and obviously in Australia as well, then get those approvals uh, rescinded within 12 months when you see what's actually happening in the real world. And it's probably similar to how, you know, Pfizer's trial data, as we are saying before, originally said 95% effective in preventing COVID-19. And now we can clearly see if we are... If we go back to this graph here, so with a population of about 90% odd uh, double dose vaccinated, uh, it is clear as day it isn't preventing 95% of uh, COVID infections. But <clears throat> let's let's continue with this. So this is the trial data in indi individuals aged 5 to less than 12 years of age. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Again, I'll put the... Uh, the um, I'll put in the show notes these links so you can go and read them yourselves if you choose to. Now it says here, so it meets the emergency use uh, authorization guidance. Obviously, we don't have an emergency use authorization pathway in Australia, but essentially they're saying that there is clear and compelling data to approve this based on it meeting all the safety data expectations for follow-up and durations. It means meets immunobridging criteria, it's 90.7% efficacy was observed. Again, it doesn't actually state what the efficacy was. I believe they're, they're saying that the efficacy, like the um, definition of efficacy is preventing severe disease, but I'm not too sure. Uh, there's plans for active safety follow-up under the EUA and the vaccine's benefits outweigh its risks. So again, on that note, Let's go back to that those child statistics. 60,000 cases in Australia for one death. So you have to actually know that there is a less than 0.0017% chance that your child's going to have a serious adverse effect from this vaccine which could cause death or a severe lifelong illness for that for the benefits to actually outweigh its risks. Now, the most interesting thing I found out of this so you need to consider, this is the data that the TGA used to approve these vaccines for the children in Australia. In the phase one of this, there was only 48 participants and they're broken up into three groups. Now, the whole point of phase one was to trial what dosage of uh, mRNA was the best. So they were broken up into three different groups of 16 participants. One was given 10 micrograms, one was given 20 micrograms, and one was given 30 micrograms of mRNA. After that, uh, I believe they decided that the 10 microgram dose was the right dose. So phase two and three, which were joint, uh, there was 1,500 participants that received the vaccine itself and 750 received the placebo. 
So consider this. In Australia, we have probably roughly in the vicinity of 2 million children beneath the age of 11 years old, roughly pulled out of my butthole. <laughs> and we are basing the safety data off 1,500 kids in this trial. That's it. Furthermore, what was really concerning to me is the timelines. So see what I was saying before? The, the timeline between dose one and dose two was 21 days in the trial. So I'm not really too sure again why on the approval in Australia, they are saying to have, uh, oh no, here we go. People are, I oh know that's the three and six weeks, five to 11 years old, given eight weeks apart. I'm not really sure why the TGA is saying eight weeks when the Pfizer trial did 21 days. And I believe in America, it's 21 days apart too for the two vaccines. So as you can see here, uh, time between the first dose and the second dose is 21 days. They monitored them for reactogenicity in the seven days after the second dose and did a one month follow-up as well for any non-serious adverse uh, effects. And there's plans obviously to do a six month follow-up uh, of the adverse events as well. And they're doing blood draws at uh, the one month and the six month to uh, check if you're still immune from COVID. But this was my main concern as well. So they're saying the best available data. So the best available data is based on 1,500 kids who were given this vaccine. And in the initial enrollment group of 2,268 participants, of which the 1,500 got the vaccine, the median follow-up time was 2.3 months. Now, so that's median average. So the average follow-up time for these kids was 2.3 months. Now, some of them had an additional follow-up time of 3.3 months. So we're looking at roughly six months that some of these kids were followed up. In the safety expansion group, so this initial enrollment group would have been tested, uh, there to test safety and efficacy. In the safety expansion group, They've only actually, the median follow-up time was 2.4 weeks. So they're only following these kids testing the safety of just over two weeks after the vaccine was given. In, again, in my head, I look at the statistics and I go back and I go, okay, so for the entire pandemic, we've had 60,000 kids get the disease and one die. So that's over almost two years worth of data now. And now we're basing rolling out this vaccine of 1500 kids getting a vaccine and we followed them up for between 2.3 and six months that's it that's all the data we've got if you want to go through and read these for yourself like i said i'm not going to go through the rest of the slides because um, they basically just say it's all it's all good news and and whatever it goes through some adverse events and stuff like that as well now again just to sort of sum that up a little bit we're rolling out the vaccines today. If I if I could give any suggestion to any parent out there, please actually read the real data to make a real decision on what you want to do for your children. I'm not going to tell you to not vaccinate them. I'm not going to tell you to vaccinate them. I just think you really need to weigh up the risks and the benefits and the long-term risks and benefits. Because as we're clearly seeing, like I, I think I know eight or nine people at the moment who actually have symptomatic COVID-19 out of my own friendship circle, eight or nine people because it just spread through everyone. And I would say out of that, somewhere between six and eight of them are fully vaccinated. So it's clearly not stopping people from getting the disease. As far as the outcomes, every single person I've spoken to has said they've had a bad two days and then after that it's become manageable. 
whether they're vaccinated or not. So that's only my experience, but that's based on people around my age group, so in that 30 to 39 cohort. Now, I just wanted to remind you of this. So this was from the 30th of July, 2021. So this is sort of pertinent to the, the whole Novak situation and the mandate situation. So on Friday, the 30th of July, 2021, there was a media release uh, from Ro Do uh, the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, in regards to new guidance for fully vaccinated people. Because over in America, they did the same thing as they've done over here. They basically pretended that if you're fully vaccinated, you'll be able to go back to life as normal. And if you're not vaccinated, you won't. Uh, on the 27th of July, the CDC updated its guidance for fully vaccinated people, recommending that everyone wear a mask in indoor public settings, in areas of substantial and high transmission, regardless of vaccination status. This decision was made with the data and science available to the CDC at the time, including a valuable public health partnership resulting in rapid receipt and review of unpublished data. Today, some of those data were published in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report, demonstrating that Delta infection resulted in similarly high SARS-CoV-2 viral loads in vaccinated and unvaccinated people. High viral loads suggest an increased risk of transmission and raise concern that, unlike with other variants, vaccinated people infected with Delta can transmit the virus. Now, why is this important? Why is this relevant when it's six months ago? Clearly, six months ago was before we had a lot of our vaccine mandates uh, put in place in Australia. And we continue to pretend in Australia that being vaccinated prevents you from actually spreading the virus because that's that's been the justification. It's been it prevents you from spreading it and it prevents you from ending up in hospital, which can put some sort of strain on the on the healthcare system and therefore will save other people by not taking up a bed when someone else needs it. So six months ago, we knew with Delta that vaccinated people could spread the virus. Now, I've also said previously on the podcast before that it doesn't mean that's it that's at peak viral load time now if the vaccine does assist you in clearing the virus faster it means you may be uh, transmissible for a shorter period of time however on the flip side of that if the vaccine does work and give you some protection you could potentially be have less symptoms than a non-vaccinated person and therefore be more likely to go out in the community and, and spread it and i guess particularly with things like omicron which appears to be uh, far less uh, deadly as well, people are probably even less likely to have symptoms that uh, warrant them to not go out in public. And maybe that's why we're seeing the increased spread that we're seeing now. So we've known for six months that being vaccinated doesn't matter when it comes to actually spreading the disease. So that brings us to sort of the whole vaccine mandate and Novak Djokovic situation. So this is, I'll, I'll go through this in a moment because this was the most recent mandate that was put in up in Queensland, which is already starting to look like utter nonsense. But with the Novak situation, we are essentially putting ourselves forth as a complete COVID-crazed state internationally because Novak Djokovic is being completely fucked around uh, by our government at the moment. No, let's be clear. Novak doesn't have covid Novak has not brought COVID into the country. Omicron clearly came into the country in vaccinated people because while when Omicron came out a month ago, well, just over a month now, the only people out into the country were fully vaccinated people. So fully vaccinated people have become infected with Omicron, brought it into the country, and now it's spreading everywhere. Whether you're vaccinated or not, people are getting it. So the justification 
to have a vaccine mandate to keep other people safe just does not exist. It is completely unscientific. And yet, if we go back to how we are advertising this vaccine to children, we are now claiming again from the TGA that vaccinating children can help protect them from getting COVID-19 and it can also help prevent them from spreading it. And like I just stated, it could potentially help us from spread, help them from spreading the virus if they clear the virus sooner. But saying that it's going to help protect them from getting it is a ridiculous notion and it's unscientific. So with Novak, he did not have COVID when he entered the country, so he's not given COVID to anyone. He's far more likely to actually get COVID in Melbourne at the moment because of the amount of cases. And yet we are, we are pointing the finger of blame at Novak for just trying to come over here and play in a tournament that he was given the all clear to come play in by Tennis Australia. It's ridiculous. But anyway, let's move on. This was the statement uh, from Anastasia Palaszczuk and Yvette Darth about the vaccine mandate extending to education, correction centres and airport sectors. So this was from the 30th of November 2021. So you can see here that, where are we? So the only way to prevent deaths and protect Queenslanders from new variants of COVID-19 is to ramp up our vaccination rollout, the Premier said. These measures are about protecting our most vulnerable. To keep our children safe, we must ensure teachers and frontline education workers are vaccinated. Again, how does having vaccinated teachers protect the children when the vaccinated teacher can pass on the disease? which we're clearly seeing and we've known for six months from the CDC. It just, it, it doesn't make any sense. Now, many of you will probably have seen in the news recently about how Queensland's already starting to talk about the likelihood that because of the Omicron explosion, we are potentially looking at going to at-home learning uh, in 2022. So what was the point of doing the vaccine mandate for teachers or corrections workers? if they're going to be at home anyway, with empty classrooms. This was again sold under false pretenses. They used Omicron as the, what's the, the word, the shoehorn to open us up, to let in these mandates. And as like, it, it's blatantly obvious. So it's, it's the seventh. This, we've been talking about this all week already. It is blatantly obvious that the vaccine doesn't stop the spread. So they're still mandating it for these people. They haven't removed the mandates. And yet, even though they, they're going to have a fully vaccinated workforce, they're still talking about at-home learning. I'm all for at-home learning. Obviously, it makes sense when you're in a global pandemic to stop people from uh, getting the disease if you can stop it. But claiming that the vaccination is going to protect the children nonsensical it'll be I'm, I'm following the story obviously my wife's a teacher we are she is going on maternity leave at the start of well this year anyway so it's not really affecting us hugely but we've got a lot of teacher friends that it is greatly affecting and i'm watching this uh with bated breath because not only is omicron spreading whether you're vaccinated or not but children as of today can get vaccinated if the parents choose to vaccinate them so now it's a personal choice thing. Obviously, the parents have the option whether or not they want to vaccinate the kids or take the chance. Again, it still makes no sense to have a vaccine mandate. And ironically, this whole Novak Djokovic situation might end up actually helping out a lot of us because he's in the high court all weekend as well. So it'll be interesting to see what the results of that are and whether or not it sets a precedent for every other industry that's got a mandate. 
You may have also seen recently that in New South Wales, because the healthcare system is so stretched with the amount of nurses and healthcare workers that need to quarantine all the time, they're actually telling COVID positive health staff to go back to work because they don't have enough staff. So they would rather have patients who are ill be treated by COVID positive nursing staff than just bring the unvaccinated workers back to work. Now, I was going to do a big rant about this, about how ridiculous that is and how we should just be getting them to come back and help out, but it actually kind of feels to me like a bit of an abusive relationship. Like, it's sort of like the the health minister's equivalent of texting these nurses at 1am in the morning going, you up? You know what I mean? Like, oh, now, now we can use you, now we have a use for you, so come back. It's just gross. But it's all nonsensical. Obviously, none of this stuff makes any sense. There should be no vaccine mandates. None at all. Even in elder, in aged care, it still makes no sense. It's the same as mask wearing. Clearly, the mask wearing is not stopping the spread. We've got mask mandates in every state in the country, and we've had 500,000 cases in a month. The masks don't stop the spread. All it is is pageantry. All it is is trying to train people into doing what they're told. It's, it's, it's unscientific. And at the end of the day, the data suggests that the only thing that's going to give us any sort of immunity from this disease is actually getting the disease itself. In New South Wales, we've got news stories here. So nightclubs to close, elective surgery paused uh, as New South Wales considers new restrictions. If we go back to this data here, let's, let's look at the vaccination rates uh, state by state. Where are we at? So New South Wales, total doses administered almost 14 million doses of vaccine. Uh, so first dose, 6.5 million. Second dose, 6.4 million. So if we look at actual total vaccination rates, New South Wales from zero plus, they haven't even started rolling it out to kids yet, is still at 80% single dose, 79% double dose. In the 12 plus cohort, 94.3% of the population is single dose vaccinated. 92.8% is double dose vaccinated. And yet, we are looking at bringing back restrictions. Stop telling everyone that the vaccine's the only way out. The vaccine, the biggest problem with Australia's response to this pandemic has been a single-minded focus on the vaccine. We are two years into this pandemic and we are still not talking about how people can treat themselves at home, what decisions to make, drink less alcohol, don't smoke cigarettes, take vitamins, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, drink more water, get better sleep, exercise, get out in the sunlight. We are two years into this pandemic and there has been just a single-minded focus on one solution which clearly doesn't work. So the question is why? Why do we continually walk down a road that is just not working? And the, I mean, the only thing that could potentially make sense is some sort of either incentive or pressure. That's it. It's the only thing that justifies the complete and utter incompetence we've experienced from our government throughout this entire pandemic. You even look at now. We're now in a period of time where we have just approved rapid antigen tests. But guess what? You can't get one. We're closing down PCR testing centres because there's too many tests. In Queensland, the Queensland government, we've had QR codes in for 18 months. 
tracking where every single person goes in Australia for 18 months. And then as soon as we had an explosion of cases, when we're talking between 500 and 1,000 a day, as soon as it got to that point, Queensland government was like, oh, no, the system can't handle this. We're not, we're not even going to do it anymore, but you still need to sign in. So there's no, you have to do your own contact tracing now. If you get COVID, you're supposed to call everyone that you've spoken to. The rapid antigen tests. I've got an interesting point on this because I can't help but feel like what we're doing with rapid antigen tests is exactly the same as what they did with the vaccine rollout. Right at the beginning of the rollout, they spoke about how it was the best thing that you could possibly do to protect yourself from this disease. And then they told everyone they couldn't have it because there were stock shortages. What have we done with rats? Rapid antigen tests. We've told them, everyone, you no longer need to get a PCR test to actually confirm your positive diagnosis from a rat test. And a rat test works for literally everything that you needed a PCR for before. And guess what? You can't get them. Are you telling me that, because we've known for six months-ish that we were going to be moving towards rapid antigen tests at some point. Are you telling me we didn't order enough tests? Or do you think that perhaps there's, I don't know, warehouses full of them and all we're doing is we're building up that demand because you see it on social media every single day, people screaming out, trying to find rats. I need a rat. And then once that gets to a fever pitch, you just launch them onto the market, you sell every single unit like that because it's supply and demand. People are so scared, they just snap them up. It's insanity. I just... I still believe that we are very, very close to this whole situation being over because the government is completely losing control of the narrative. The narrative over the entire period has been, get the vaccine, life goes back to normal. Well, you know, we're two years in now. I'm, I'm literally about to have this, my second child of the pandemic. I'm, I've had two kids during the pandemic. That's how long this has gone on for. And we're still being told, oh, now just get boosted. The booster shots will help prevent severe disease. Well, guess what? It appears that people's whatever vaccine they've already had or even their just natural immunity is already preventing severe disease provided you're not in one of the high-risk cohorts, which is elderly, immunocompromised, obese, diabetic. Those are the main things. Or uh, respiratory issues like asthma. If you don't have those things, you should be sweet, as we, as we are seeing through everyone. But we still have this single-minded approach I'm just going to bring up one last thing, which I'm actually going to have to go to Google for. So uh, let's say COVID cases, Israel. So this is an interesting thing from Google because they've actually got these graphs that you can go through all the different countries. We've spoken about this on the podcast before. So in Israel, who has just started delivering their fourth shot. So consider that within 12 months, they're on four shots. New cases have spiked again. If we go to deaths, ah, oh, sorry, here we go. Deaths, now deaths are lower, but obviously deaths have lowered for a while. So this is the 2nd of October back here where deaths were sort of peaking last time. Uh, it was slightly after that that we've started seeing Omicron in, in most places around the world. So the deaths have dropped off. Let's look at Australia just to compare that data. So Australia, as we stated, the most highest vaccinated we've been. Look at look at that graph. Look at that skyrocketing graph. We've literally gone from, on the 2nd of October, we were sitting at new cases, uh, at a seven-day average of 2,225 new cases a day, to now we're sitting at 
a seven-day average of 53,592 new cases per day. If we look at deaths, in October we're sitting at a seven-day average of 14, and now we're sitting at a seven-day average of 12. So the deaths basically haven't changed, but the hospitalizations have gone... Oh, sorry, the actual cases have gone up astronomically. Let's look at some other countries around the world. India, which we've spoken about a million times before, especially... Uttar Pradesh, who started using ivermectin to treat their patients. Back here. This was where it was May last year that we started using, well, they started using ivermectin. Look at the cases. So Uttar Pradesh, which has got a population of 200 million people, is at a seven-day average of cases at the moment of 709. That's it. We're at a seven-day average of 53,000 Let's look at Japan. Japan, again, started using ivermectin a couple of months ago. Look at that. Now they're at a seven-day average of 871, which if you go back to where, where was the peak? Peak was at 20, roughly the 24th of August. They're at 23,147 because they actually started treating people. And again, with these cases, it is the same principle as the vaccine rollout. If you start treating people, then they clear the virus much faster and then they're not spreading it. That's the whole point, that's what we want. But think about Australia, we are two years into this pandemic. What treatment are we talking about? Do you guys know? There is none. I saw an ABC article, uh, which again is our national broadcaster, so government messaging, talking about how to treat yourself with COVID at home. And they literally said, Panadol and Ibuprofen. Same thing as most people use to treat common colds. Panadol and Ibuprofen. Now, Ibuprofen can help you with, obviously, inflammation and stuff like that that might be caused by COVID. But Panadol is really just masking the pain. It's not actually actually helping you treat the disease itself. So what are we relying on? Your immune system, which we possibly could have just used the whole way through. So anyway... Let's wrap it up there. This one's obviously a bit shorter, a little bit... I wouldn't say it's sweeter. Uh, I just want to leave you with this. Any of you out there who is concerned as to where this country is going in regards to the COVID rollout, I want to assure you, the more ridiculousness and the more hysteria you see in the media, the better. Because it means that the, the more crazy it gets, the closer this thing is to finishing. Because it is clear as day now that the government is struggling to keep a hold of the narrative. And plus, the government wants this stuff to go away anyway. That's why you're seeing the shortages of tests. The only way they can get case numbers down now is to not test anyone. PCR centres have closed and you can't get rats. And then, over the next coming weeks, the amount of cases is going to go down. And then they're going to be going, look how good the vaccine's working. Oh, it must be because we started vaccinating kids. That's why all the the cases have gone down. Don't fall for it, guys. But it's almost over because we are in an election year now. And as we all know, none of this has had anything to do with health. Every single part of it has been about politics and power. And you will see those results play out over the coming months. So anyway, I'll leave it there, guys. Thanks very much for joining me. And we'll see you next week on the RDO podcast.